Our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it, especially in areas affecting public safety and human life. I'm Bryson Bort, and this is Hack the Plant. Electricity, finance, transportation, our water supply. We take these critical infrastructure systems for granted, but they're all becoming increasingly dependent on the internet to function. Every day, I ask and look for answers to the questions. Does our connectivity leave us more vulnerable to attacks by our enemies? I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and the co-founder of the nonprofit ICS Village, educating people on critical infrastructure security with hands-on examples, not just nerd stuff. I founded Grimm in 2013, a consultancy that works the front lines of these problems every day for clients all over the world. It's playing out in Israel right now where hackers have been going after Israeli water systems. Again, not to steal information from them, but to change the setting on the chemicals in Israeli water. Each month, I'm going to walk you through my world of hackers, insiders, and government working on the front lines of cybersecurity and public safety to protect the systems you rely upon every day. If you think that the small town water authorities and the mom and pop size companies uh, have better cybersecurity in the US than the Israelis do, I have really, really bad news for you. An attack on our critical infrastructure, the degradation to the point that they can no longer support us means that we go back to the Stone Age literally overnight. If we think the government's gonna solve it for us, we're wrong, we have to help them. This is not a podcast for the faint of heart. If you want to meet those protecting the world and what problems keep them up at night, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Bryson Port, and this is Hack the Plant. For today's episode, I'm joined by another legend in the space and a good friend, as well as one of the co-founders of the Beer ISAC. Patrick Miller. Patrick is a critical infrastructure security and regulatory advisor, a former, well, (laughs) as he says, recovering regulator, and in the managing partner at Archer International. We're here today to talk about how to keep critical infrastructure secure. Patrick works with a community of former regulators to consult on critical infrastructure, inspiring an operational approach to an industry, trying to balance regulation, service, and security. There's this big difference, frankly, just this massive rift between compliant and secure. I'm going to make a regulation today. I'm going to make a regulation that if you ride your bike uh, to work or anywhere, you must lock your bike to a provided bike rack with a U-lock or a cable lock or something like that. And you walk outside and you realize that you've locked the frame to the rack and there's nothing left but a frame. So, you know, you're compliant, but you were not secure. So with my company, what we try to do is help organizations do both, which is an insanely difficult challenge, uh, but it's helping them understand that the, you know, the regulation is basically the floor, not the ceiling. I invited Patrick to join the podcast following our conversation in episode two with Josh Corman of I Am The Cavalry about why to love hackers, because the cavalry isn't coming to save us. Beer ISAC is a play on ISAC, an information sharing and analysis center where experts in verticals like finance, automotive, etc., share intelligence on attackers. 
The Beer ISAC is a critical infrastructure specific version of I Am the Cavalry, a community of hackers, experts, and regulators who are focused on improving critical infrastructure security. Today, we discuss why Beer ISAC was founded, challenges to our critical infrastructure, and what a regulatory approach should look like. How are you doing today, Patrick? I'm doing well, Bryson. Thanks for having me. Why don't you give a quick introduction of who you are and what you do? Uh, sure, sure. Um, currently, the well, I'm a managing partner at Archer uh, International. We do basically consulting, you know, OT, ICS, cybersecurity, physical security, and uh, a very strong regulatory uh, focus just because of most of us are ex-regulators, or I like to say recovering regulators. That uh, and then you know history in uh, various utilities, uh, both electric and um, water and gas, uh, even some you know municipal stuff, transportation and uh, wastewater in the Pacific Northwest, and then before that a long history in uh, telecom. Old school telecom guy used to wear like a you know pole spikes and butt set and a hard hat and climb poles. Well, I imagine it was more than hard hats that helped. Uh bring that transition from telecom into industrial control systems. Uh, what, what, what made that happen? Where, where'd you make that, that jump? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, right around the college window. Um, the, I'm, I'm old. So I started with, you know, the, the early computers. Um, I had, you know, the, the green screen stuff, TRS 80 and, and onward from there. Um, but just got into the whole the computing space and started in the telecom world. It went from, you know, a lot of standard copper uh, to ripping out the old KSUs and DSUs and putting in a bunch of the the smaller digital systems and everything got from, you know, what used to be insanely massive cabling down to much smaller and you just moved into the digital world. And I kind of grew from that, you know, hardware uh, old school space into the, the more, I guess, logical or cyberspace and began building things like data centers and getting into all the environmentals and the electrical and understanding how all of that fits together and just really fell in love with it. So it kind of kind of grew naturally over time. So at your current company, Archer, uh, walk us through a day in the life. <laughs> a day in the life. Wow. Uh, we, we, like I say, most of the stuff we do is really around the, the nexus of regulation and security, because those two things really don't don't, they don't fit well. It's really hard to regulate security. Um, it, it, it's not like regulating to an engineering specification, like you're not going to, you know, your products won't catch fire and kill people, uh, that kind of thing. It's it's more of an attitude and and there isn't like a, a, a state where you're secure, right? It's this kind of never ending fluctuation of, of attacker tactics and vulnerability position and all this great stuff. Um, so from having been a former regulator and even authored some of the regulations that are in place now, um, not just in the U.S., but in other countries, it, it's a challenging thing to do to try to um, prescribe um, action, but you, you, can't, you can't give them the right attitude, right? And it's usually if they have to do it as a regulation, they don't want to. Uh, so there's, there's always this interesting mix of, um, you know, I always use the example of, I've, I'm going to make a regulation today. I'm going to make a regulation that if you ride your bike uh, to work or anywhere, you must lock your bike to a provided bike rack with a U-lock or a cable lock or something like that. And you walk outside and you realize that you've locked the frame to the rack and there's nothing left but a frame. So, the, you know, you're compliant, but you were not secure. So there's this, there's this, you know, big difference, you know, frankly, just this massive rift between, you know, compliant and secure. Uh, so with my company, what we try to do is help organizations do both. 
um, which is an insanely difficult challenge, uh, but it's helping them understand that the, you know, the regulation is basically the floor, not the ceiling. You have to at least do that much. Uh, but what are all the other, you know, really positive incentives to just having a more secure attitude, right? I mean, it's going to help you with insurance. It's going to have help you with loss prevention and, and all of these other real business things that aren't just, you know, security blinky lights that hope you, you know, make you feel better because you bought some more security widgets. So the day in the life is I deal with executives uh, from, I say, the boots to the suits. I deal with the operational folks trying to help them uh, change perspectives and then deal with the executives trying to figure out where they're going to get the money and uh, changing other other executives' minds on you know the mindset of why this is good for the business. So it's a, it's a full range. It's, there isn't really just like a, I go turn this knob or twist this wrench. Yeah. In, in my experience, there are, there are two kinds of companies and it doesn't matter the technical products, the implementations or even how smart or how good the staff is at that company, it comes down to the leadership. There are the companies where leadership takes information cybersecurity seriously and those that don't. And that is the biggest delineation that I've seen between performance in my experience. Yeah, uh, I would I would echo exactly. It's it's really hard to lead up. And a lot of the SMEs or your subject matter experts that are doing this day to day, they don't they don't want to have to deal with breaches. They don't want to deal with all that nonsense. They just want to do their job. Uh, so most of them really do want to be secure and are willing to, to do steps here and there to, to be more secure. And there are some that frankly just don't you don't care. Um, but most of them do. And at the executive level, usually it's a you know, it is a mindset thing. Some of them um, I've actually been asked uh, by some executives um, quantify the risk for me from a compliance perspective. If I don't comply, is it going to cost me more in penalties uh, than it would cost me to spend on the security that that would be required to meet the minimum bar? And I was just floored. I mean, I'm, I'm first of all, that's completely unethical. <laughs> Second of all, you're not even willing to do the bare minimum. Um, and third, you really just don't care whether the you know you have any security issues whatsoever. You're just worried about how much you have to spend, and you're willing to spend the bare minimum uh, to get by. So um, that's kind of that that opposite end of the spectrum. And then, of course, I've seen other organizations that are more than happy to go well above and beyond because they know it's the right thing for their business. Um, some have even taken it so far as to, like in the in some of the industrial control system spaces, they're actually using it now as a, a product differentiator where, you know, in the past, it was never really a consideration. But if the leadership doesn't get it, I, I totally agree. They if, if the leadership is not on board, um, you know, the horse goes where the head goes. So it, it, that, that's just a guarantee. Well, and, and critical infrastructure is, I think, even more challenging in that regard. Uh, the example that I, I like to use is if you're looking at an electric utility, certainly there are electric utilities that are large, cover multiple states and have a significant rate base. And then there's, you know, the tiny little utility that has a rate base of a few thousand and they're regulated in how much uh, revenue they can drive, what they can charge. And so they really are working with a limited pie. And so where do you see that balance and, and how do you how do you get beyond that? Because um, that's that's inherently your hands are tied behind your back with what you can in fact be able to invest in. Yeah, you know, that's a really it's a really interesting one. Um, that one requires a bit of explanation. So from the, the electric world is, you know, my home. Um, that's where I came from primarily. Uh, the difference is, for example, some of the small ones, uh, there's a different model for different types of utilities. The first one I'll, I'll talk about is called a cooperative, and they're actually owned by the customer. So the, the customer is an owner. If the company makes you know X amount of profit over a certain amount, then a dividend comes back to the ratepayer, 
right? They're, they own the company. So they're, they have a stake in the organization directly. Um, what I've seen in a lot of cases is that the cooperatives are, are actually really forward thinking and they make a major effort to be secure because it's got a direct impact to them, not just from an electricity standpoint, from a dollars and cents standpoint. Um, so those organizations I've found to be probably my one of some of my favorites to work with, frankly. Um, then there's the municipalities, which in some cases can be very large, for example, like L.A. Um, or San Antonio. These are some of the largest municipalities that are utilities um, out there. And they're a completely different model where you've got, you know, publicly elected uh, city commissioners and, and, you know, that's effectively their board. And they will not raise rates uh, because the public basically will vote them out of office or they won't get reelected next time. So they're they're very tightly strung in terms of how much they can spend. Um, and usually the rest of the city, since the like the electric utility, the water utility, whatever utility the city runs, um, those are most likely the cash cows uh, for the rest of the city. Because, you know, if you don't, you basically, everyone pays their electric bill or pays their water bill or they go without the, the service, right? So they're, they're guaranteed sources of income for the rest of the city. So typically the utility in the city gets milked dry by all of the other, um, you know, municipal government needs. Uh, so they're often, you know, trying to do the best with what they've got and can be very challenged to to make real progress in a lot of ways. Uh, then you have your big investor-owned utilities, which can be, you know, multi-state, multinational. Uh, and those organizations have typically, you know, some board of directors and they really are shareholder focused. Um, what is um, the profit the organization gets? Um, I actually had a chance to ask Warren Buffett why he bought Pacificor when he bought them from Mid-American Energy. Um, I said, you know, utilities, they've got a basically, especially for an investor in utility, they've got a guaranteed rate of return, but it's only so much. Right? You might make between like eight and max 14 percent because your your profits regulated, as you mentioned. And he said, you don't buy them to get rich. You buy them to stay rich uh, because they are basically a guaranteed source of at least this much income. Uh, so that's where the, the and since they are, you know, on a utility of that scale of that size, I mean, some of them are like Fortune 200, Fortune 100 companies. Um, as you can imagine, even one more percent can mean a significant amount of additional income. Uh, so those organizations, usually they have a tendency to, to have a more mature security organization because they have more money behind them. Um, they're also, um, if, if they get, you know, for example, look at what happened recently with PG&E in terms of them having to admit, you know, manslaughter charge, uh, pleading guilty to a manslaughter charge, that can hit your stock price very significantly. So given the fact that they're so publicly facing and stock prices can have a real influence on them, you know, a big cyber attack on the power system that causes lawsuits or loss of life, that's a, that's a big risk. So they have a tendency to be a little bit more mature and a little more, uh, I guess, well-equipped in some cases, but they can also be so big and so siloed that the right and left hand don't talk to each other, which creates different challenges. Well, that brings us right into questions about policy and policymakers. So first of all, if you had your druthers, you had your choice, what would be the first thing that you would ask from the regulators, from the policymakers um, to try to solve some of this? Yeah, I get I get this question a lot. I don't I struggle with it, but I, I'm going to be I guess I'm going to be a heretic. Um, I think regulation should be lightweight and I think it should be in, in areas that give us additional value beyond just making sure that in this case, for example, the lights stay on, right? Um, I, I have this, this longstanding beef with the fact that we're, we're spending enormous amounts of money on security and we're expecting things to get better. 
and even organizations that have spent just sick amounts of money and have amazingly brilliant people doing great things and they still get hacked. Um, you know, th these are, these are the, the issues that we're facing. So from an electric, you know, or even from a, just a regulatory perspective, whether it's electric utilities or just critical infrastructure, whatever you want to pick water, you know, gas, you name it. Um, what I would love to see is something that gives us some um, additional value. Like I hate to go down this path, but it's something like a data breach um, incentive and regulation. Because what we're doing now is we're basing a lot of our decisions on, frankly, just guessing and what, you know, little bits of threat intel we can get and, you know, various things like honeypots and security research. And we're trying to cobble together this picture of what is working and what isn't working, uh, where we can actually spend money on real, you know, I hate to use the terms return on investment for your security, but, you know, higher security value for the effort that you're putting into it. Um, what we don't have is actuarial data. And that's just, that's just something no one has been able to come up with enough of it, really. We're working with kind of bits and pieces. So I use the example of healthcare. Um, we know that if, you know, Patrick eats steak and, you know, drinks whiskey and has you know, really terrible exercise habits, I could, I could probably die by 40 just from all of these standard things. And we don't know that just because we're guessing. We know that because we've got, in some cases, thousands of years of actuarial data on human, you know, dietary habits and healthcare habits. Uh, but that's real data we can base, you know, more, uh, I guess, more effective and, and better decisions on. We just don't have anything like that um, in, in the cybersecurity space, especially in the critical infrastructure spaces, because no one talks about this stuff. Usually it's immediately, you know, whether it's classified or it's sequestered somehow, we don't get a lot of that real data out of these things. So I would say that if, if there was something like, you know, you must provide, a, you know, some standard security steps. And in the event that there is a breach, when there is a breach, then you must be completely forthcoming with as much forensics as you can get and provide that information. And then if you don't, you would get penalized. Um, but that not only helps you know, the organizations try to achieve a certain minimum because they're going to get penalized if they can't provide this data, right? If they weren't even able to provide the forensics, that's a problem. Um, but something along those lines, I don't have a perfect, like it must be these steps, but to me, we need better data on what is working and what isn't in order to make the situation better versus just throwing more security stuff at it and, and hoping that that works. Yeah, the, the way I like to think about that is we don't need more paperwork from the government. What no. We need are resources, right? In this case, this could be an example of um, something that uh, CISA who, or DOE um, across as federal government helping support that data sharing um, part of that ties into legal questions about liabilities, um, which is the oft excite, you know, cited excuse to why folks don't want to share um, that kind of data and open the kimono to what's happening. And as you said, that we all suffer as a result of being in that boat with everybody keeping things too close hold. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's, there's not a need for more paperwork. And I think in a lot of cases that administrative burden is what everyone complains about. Um, CISA and, and DOE uh, could be very instrumental in, you know, getting the information shared, protecting the information as, as good as it can be. Uh, and there's the there's always the liability issue. Uh, most organizations, they, you know, if they're breached or if they're hacked, uh, they don't want that, you know, out there in the public, obviously. Um, but I think if it's a if it's a requirement for everybody, then it's then it's not so much just a, you know, you got breached and, you, and now you have to admit it. Um, it's, it's going to be challenging for the first organizations that have to go through it. But, 
I think if you look at organizations like Norsk Hydro and others that have been, you know, very transparent, very open in the process, their their stock actually went up. So, you know, it's not about what happens; it's about how you handle it. And there's, you know, I think with, I guess, targeted or focused regulations with assistance from additional um, non-regulatory government agencies like CISA and DOE. Um, both of them have a very limited capacity for any kind of regulation. They could really be seen as, you know, helping organizations and, and useful for that, you know, information sharing side of it, the incentive piece, even guidance and, you know, direct assistance in some cases. Um, but yeah, the, the organizations that end up getting breached and have to disclose it, if it could be done in that open, collaborative, transparent way, the first ones are going to have to go through some heartburn, but after a while it will become, you know, commonplace. And it will demonstrate that, you know, you've got the capacity to, to not only, you know, weather this in some cases, but uh, provide the forensics so that everybody else benefits at the same time. But like I said, I think there's, there are ways to craft regulation that aren't just paperwork focused and that, that do generate um, more direct value and enable those other parts like C- CISA and DOE uh, to provide more assistance in the process. Well, I think that's the, the closest to your uh druthers or wish that you're going to get. So now that you've yeah. waved your magic wand, let's look into the crystal ball. What's your five-year prediction for one good thing and one bad thing that's going to happen in critical infrastructure? I think one good thing is we're going to see, uh, you know, I hate to use the word digital transformation because it's so overused and it, it's just a marketing buzzword. Uh, but we're seeing a lot more. I mean, you can't buy anything now that's analog. Everything is digital and everything's creating a data stream. We're going to see a lot of the critical infrastructure spaces, the industrial spaces, uh, recognize some of the value of data and not just, you know, the, the product that they're making or the energy they're pushing to the wire or water in the pipe or gas in the pipe. Um, but it's the, the data about the process will be worth in some cases, you know, enough to supplement or even in some cases possibly worth more than the actual product itself. Um, so the, the value of that data is going to drive, I think, security in a different way. Um, traditionally, it's always been, you know, just isolate them as much as you can, right? You know, the famous, you know, quote unquote air gap always shows up, which just doesn't exist. Um, so there's always been just a drive to isolate it and then hopefully it, we can protect it that way. But I think as we drive more and more digital pieces in there and, and really, you know, push to get that data, we're going to end up, you know, with a, a more secure model just because we, we have to secure it now because money is, is at, at play. You know, not money has always been at play, but this, it, it's in a different way now. It's going to touch different areas of the business. And overall, you're going to have more of an enterprise and executive level perspective on uh, keeping those uh, financial streams flowing. So I think that there'll be some uh, additional incentives there with the digitization of our world uh, to to actually give us some some benefit from the security perspective. So I, I, I'm one of the few people that believes that this may actually be a good thing. Um, there'll be all kinds of new business models that spring up from whether it's the data analytics piece or the you know storage, because if everything creates a data stream, are you really prepared to store all of that? And really, could you analyze all of it? Uh, so there'll be some interesting new niche businesses that stand up on the storage or analytics components of all of this. To, so I, th- I think that's going to be really interesting. And what, what was, you know, just OT is going to look a lot more like IT. It's all just T uh, here in the near future. So that that's my positive prediction is I think the situation may actually get certainly more challenging, but it will, I think it will actually get better. It'll get more attention, which is a good thing. Um, and then negative prediction or a bad thing, I guess, is we're probably going to see some sort of a, a legit 
uh, cyber attack, or even worst case, blended both physical and cyber attack on some some kind of infrastructure or multiple infrastructures at once, just because you know that that's an awesome uh, impact for any organization that desires such. I would say that probably within five years, someone will succeed on the next level up, at least. Uh, I think what we saw in Ukraine, of course, um, you know, distribution level blackout. Uh, thank God they could go back to manual. Uh, but we'll, I, I think we'll see something like that as well, possibly with uh, either a cyber and physical component or a multi-infrastructure component. All right. So in the bad news front, uh, you're predicting that there will be an attack. Why haven't we seen an attack in the U.S. already? Well, I mean, we haven't seen anything like that in the U.S. because um, it, it, we're pretty transparent and we're pretty public in the U.S. despite the fact that most people would like to keep these things secret. Um, I work with a lot of utilities. You'd see something if it were if it had already happened. I know there's you know a lot of uh, there are some at least uh, news articles that say that you know Russia and China are all up in our grid. Um, that's just not the case from from what I've seen firsthand. Uh, and I've touched a lot of utilities across North America, both as a regulator and as, in a, consult- as a consultant. Um, so I've seen behind the, you know, the, the wall, so to speak, at, at the, the real thing going on there. And that's just, uh, we would see something like that if it were valid. Um, there, I'm sure there are some instances where we've had, you know, corporate side concerns and that kind of thing, but all the way to like command and control into, a, into a, an actual power system, I would be surprised if that were, if it were actually true. Um, so I think we haven't seen it yet because, you know, A, they haven't gotten that far. Um, B, the, the, there's this, uh, America has always been pretty clear about the fact that if you attack our infrastructure, we're probably going to have a pretty heavy response. So you know, there may be, you know, what we call a kinetic response to something like that. Um, I think the hard part may be attribution, um, but we're also getting better at that. And we're not perfect at it by any means, but we're getting better. Uh, so I think it's just that it's, there's a pretty heavy consequence to doing something like that, especially on a large scale, right? And that, that would be, I think that's the question is if it were something small scale, would it result in, in that? Eh, maybe not. Uh, but if it were something large scale, then it would be you know, a different, a very, very different kind of response. And I, I gotta be honest, having seen the way the North American grid works, taking all of the grid out at once is just not, I hate to say impossible, but it's extremely improbable. So what kinds of malicious activity have you seen? Is there any particular uh, case, anonymized, sanitized, of course, that you can share with us? Uh, honestly, the, all, the, all the stuff I've seen has been either ransomware on the corporate side uh, or through like the external internet facing infrastructure in some cases, um, or they've gotten into, you know, customer front ends. Um, there's been very few situations where someone has made it to a control system. And in any case that I've seen where a control system has been accessed by an outside party, um, it was, you know, in some cases we couldn't even determine if it was malicious or accidental because these were just accidentally, or it's, uh, we'll, we'll put accidentally in air quotes, maybe by an engineer that needed to access it, um, uh, put on the internet directly and there weren't any protections in place. So I haven't seen a case where an attacker has gotten through all of the layers of, you know, your standard defenses um, whether they're good or bad, uh, all the way into a control system and and taken control of it. Um, I've only seen situations where something was, you know, inadvertently, we'll say, connected to the internet and then it was accessed. And even in that case, or I guess in those cases, um, there was only, you know, some of them that we could even allude to the fact that it was intentionally malicious versus uh, accident. So 
there's just there's just not a lot of it out there. Um, many of your bigger organizations that would have like a large footprint for a large impact, they're all running, you know, network anomaly tools, you know, the, the bigger names, they would see something interesting in most cases, unless your attacker is profoundly sophisticated. Um, and it's just, it's hard given the number of, I mean, any one of these, you know, big utilities has been built by merger and accretion over the past 50 to 100 years. And they're not talking about some homogenous suite of technologies. It's this crazy, insane mishmash of different things. So your attackers would have to be an expert in everything, which is just not, like I say, it's it's very improbable. Well, that heterogeneity, that mishmash of different things through accretion, on one hand, does make it a lot more difficult from an attacker to be able to work through the attack path. On the other hand, it sounds like that is one of the leading causes, which you described, um, to human error and misconfiguration, which we see all too often. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's 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 as big a benefit as it is uh, a, a detraction. And to be you know, hundred percent genuine and honest, I've seen more human accident, human uh, mistakes, uh, you know, and things like backhoes and squirrels cause more outages than any attackers by far, orders of magnitude in terms of difference. So, what about the independent research community, colloquially known as Hackers, what do you think that they bring to the table and who are they? Um, I know quite a few of them, at least the ones that are, I would say, not the criminal hackers. Criminal hackers, obviously a different discussion, but um, the folks doing the research that are trying to help, um, that's that's great. I think they're doing great stuff. Um, there's not enough of them and they're not well-resourced enough. And most organizations, not all, but most organizations are struggling to get better at responding to their uh, vulnerability reports and, and you know, flaws or bugs they found in their platforms. So I, I would certainly encourage them to keep at it. Um, know that I, they're, that you know we've got, there's a lot of people behind you. Um, we are all working to get through to the vendors to help them understand what to do with these notices when they come in and how to handle this in the right way. Um, many organizations, like I say, are, are struggling to get better. Some are, are way ahead of the curve and others you know, try to take you to court if you send them something like that because they think you're trying to extort them, which is silly. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing. Um, and there's there's just, there's so much technology out there. There's just not enough um, uh, time to pay their, you know, to pay them for their work. Um, yeah, there's some people are on the fence about bug bounties, whether that's a good thing or not. Um, you know, and even things like Pwn to Own, which I think is fantastic. I watched the last one at uh, S4 for the industrial control systems. That was awesome. We need more of that stuff. Um, but I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think it, it's it's only going to benefit us uh, in the long term to have as many possible independent eyes on this as we possibly can. Um, deep down at heart, I'm a scientist, and I think that you know that's scientific peer review is what's gotten us advanced throughout the years in, in very real ways. And this is effectively kind of the same thing just in our world. There's strength in numbers, <laughs> and the community can only be as strong as its ability to pull together, which leads us to the beer ISAC. <laughs> what is the Beer ISAC? Why did you name it that? And uh, what was the catalyst for you uh, helping to create it? That's funny. Um, and you are one of the coin carrying members of the Beer ISAC. Um, Beer ISAC was zero eighty four. Nice. Uh, I I was on stage at S four again. Um, this I think was twenty sixteen. Um, I've been you know within the, the NERC sphere around the, what then was ES-ISAC, now EISAC. 
Uh, I've worked with the Water ISAC. S4 is the annual Mecca, or conference, for ICS practitioners in the United States. NERC is the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Its mission, to assure the effective and efficient reduction of risks to the reliability and security of the electric grid. The EISAC is the electric ISAC, providing shared threat intelligence on the latest threats to the grid. I've been around um, various different you know, types of certs, international certs. Um, I was ranting about information sharing and threat intelligence, uh, and frankly, just kind of kind of bitching about the fact that we have this, this crazy mix of different ways we share information, and we have to wait for the kind of uber-validated, slow-moving methods that we get with a lot of the ISACs um, that most people complain about, or frankly, they take too long, and when I finally get it, there's no real value to me. It's, all it does is validate what I already knew. There's still some value in that, right? It's it's been validated by you know a, an authoritative body thoroughly. Okay, that, that's good. Some want that bleeding edge, you know, tip up front that's got a lower degree of confidence, but they get earlier warning, right? It's going to take a mix of that. So I was saying basically what I've seen and where I get most value in terms of information sharing is you know organized or I guess uh, structures that are like um, the social media platforms like Twitter or Facebook or whatever and I hate to use those but they're the small circles of trust of people that you know and information can move through those because of the trust relationships between the humans so you've got the situation where stuff like you know you'll find out about an earthquake faster through Twitter than you'll feel it travel through the ground that that's an interesting fact it's real um, but that's how, you know, if you if you use those organizations in addition to the other existing structures, um, that can be tremendously valuable. So the pitch was basically um, all of those are good. You still need them, but you need to build your human network and you need to you know find as many people you can align with and figure out, you know, if you trust them and why you trust them. And you, you really got to work on that human side of things. And I joked about the fact that what we what we really need is something like a beer ISAC where we all get together over beers and share war stories and make friends and then share information. Um, and as more or less kind of an off the cuff joke, literally made it up as I'm pacing around on stage. Um, by the time I got off stage, somebody had created a beer ISAC Twitter account and and it kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, and now it's uh, it's I guess there's we made some challenge coins for it and. Uh, we hold, you know, various different meetings at any event and anybody can hold a beer ISAC meeting. It doesn't take a coin or anything like that. You can just what we're doing is giving a name to that human networking component, whether it's over coffee or beer or whatever, um, just building that human network to, to get that information flow happening uh, in that way. In addition to all the other structures that you have, because it's it's got as much or more value than some of the other official channels. So that's kind of the beer ISAC in a nutshell. Um, it's it's not really any one organization or any one thing. It's just a name for what we were already doing. Isn't it funny how ideas like that start to take on a life of their own? And you have all of these electrons, these experts, electrons bouncing around and setting off electricity of ideas and how it's splintered across. It's, it's now international. Um, I believe that we've also uh, created subchapters in other countries all around industrial control systems and curricular infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's really taken on a life of its own. It's fantastic to see. I mean, yeah, I don't, I definitely don't want to take credit for it. I'll, I'll like just get, I get credit for joking about the fact that we should give it a name. If any, I'll, I'll take credit for helping to to buy the, the beer and whiskey to get them all together so that they can share ideas. All right. Well, Patrick, it has been a fantastic. Uh, 
podcast. Uh, we thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Anytime, man. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Hack the Plant, a podcast of the R Street Institute and ICS Village Nonprofit. Subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so we can reach even more listeners. Tell us what you thought about it and who we should interview next by finding us on Twitter at RSI or at ICS underscore village. Finally, if you want to know more about R Street or ICS Village, visit rstreet.org or icsvillage.com. I'm your host, Bryson Borg. Thank you to executive producer Tyler Lowe of Fader Creative, creative producer William Gray, and editor Dominic Sterrett of Sterrett Productions.